Bibles to Exodus. Exodus. I'm serious. Open your Bible to Exodus. I'm not joking. We were in Genesis for a year and a half, and um, we're, we're going to be in Exodus for one week. I'm serious. We're going to be in Exodus for one week. Some of you may have seen the movie Exodus, starring Christian Bale. I saw the movie. And I'll just go on the record for saying I was highly disappointed in the film. As a matter of fact, I thought it was pretty blasphemous myself. Uh, there was a scene where Moses is at the burning bush, and God shows up to Moses as a snot-nosed little 11-year-old British kid. And Moses is not quite sure if it's God. Moses is depicted as a violent man that abandons his family. He's not really sure what's going on. And he goes on this crusade to somehow lead the Israelites to be warriors against the Egyptians. I was very disappointed because as one who has studied the life of Moses for many years now and have come to appreciate Moses as probably one of my favorite Old Testament characters, I felt that it was important that we look at what does the Bible really say about Moses and what does the Bible really say about God and what's the Exodus all about. So as we start the year 2015, some of you may be thinking, ah, he's going straight from Genesis into Exodus for one Sunday. We're going to do an overview of the book of Exodus. Next week, we're going to start our new sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. But I thought that it would be nice just to kind of have a segue as we finished up Genesis, as we start the new year, to, to just look at the book of Exodus, see how it relates to what we saw in Genesis, see how it moves us forward to what's happening in the New Testament. And so what I want to do is I want to give uh, four overviews, four big ticket items in Exodus. Exodus is a big book. I'm not going to try to preach the entire book in one Sunday, but I do want us to look at four major issues in the first couple of chapters of Exodus that point us back to what we saw in Genesis and point us forward to Jesus Christ and the gospel, and more importantly, get us prepared to take the Lord's Supper this morning. So, before we start Exodus, I want us to travel back to Genesis chapter 15. It'll be on the screen. Genesis chapter 15 is where the Lord reiterates his covenant with Abraham, if you remember, and puts Abraham into a deep sleep and gives Abraham a prophecy about what was going to happen 400 years into the future. So Genesis 15, 13 through 14, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now this was a direct prophecy to Abraham that his family, the Israelites, would be 400 years in captivity in Egypt, and then God would one day lead them out of captivity. So Genesis predicts the exodus right there to Abraham. So, let's ask a question. How does Genesis end? Remember a few weeks ago, Genesis ends with Joseph and his family living in Egypt. And everything's great with the Israelites. There's about 70 of them. They're in a great relationship with the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's given them the best of the land. They're able to live in, in the best of the land in Goshen. And everything is great with the Israelites in Egypt. But how does Exodus start? Fast forward 400 years, 
as Genesis closes and Exodus starts, let's read the opening words of Exodus. The first thing we want to focus on this morning, issue number one, is the problem. The problem. Exodus starts with the problem, a major problem. So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. And let's see the problem that the Exodus begins with. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. No longer is it a family of 70 living in the confines of Goshen under the protective hand of Pharaoh. Now it's a mighty nation. We'll find out it's probably a little bit over 2 million people living in Egypt under a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And look at the words that are used. The repetition of these words that are used, they afflicted the Israelites. They dealt shrewdly with them. They made life bitter for them. They dealt ruthlessly with them. That's a very rare word in the Hebrew text. They dealt ruthlessly. What it really means in the original language is to crush them into little pieces. That was the desire of the Pharaoh, to crush the Israelites into little pieces as slaves. So they're in captivity, they're in slavery, they're under the bitter, violent, vengeful hand of a new Pharaoh that does not know Joseph. But God is not silent. That's the problem. The problem is slavery. What's the issue number two? The concern. Let's go to chapter two. And let's just look briefly at verses 23 through 25 because this tells us the concern that God has for his people. God is not silent. God has not forgotten them. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. They cried out for help. They're probably wondering as a people, where's God in the midst of all this? Has God forgotten about us? Does God remember that he made a covenant with our, with our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth? Where's God in the midst of all this? We are being treated as slaves. It's bitter. We're being dealt ruthlessly. We're being crushed to pieces. Where is God in the midst of all this? And so they begin to cry out, God, where are you? But notice it says four things there. Interestingly, God heard them. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. 
God's not a distant God. He remembered. Now, does that mean that God forgot? God can't forget because he's God. But it says he remembered his covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God remembers that covenant. What did God promise Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17? Chapter 17, 7 through 8, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God says, I promised you. I promised you the land. I've not forgotten. But it's interesting. Notice the very last word there in verse 25. My translation says God knew. Maybe you have an NIV or or another translation that said God showed concern. It really conveys the idea in the original language that God had this compassionate concern for his people. God was right in the middle of the pain. God was right in the middle of their circumstances. And God knew. God was there. God cared God showed concern. So here's the problem. They're in slavery. Number two, God shows concern for them, but here's number three. Number three is the solution. How's God going to answer their groanings? How's God going to deal with them being in slavery? And the answer is very simple. He's going to raise up Moses as a deliverer. Moses is going to be the man of God called to lead the people out of slavery. And Moses is going to be a preacher. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to be a leader. And so when you get to chapter 3 of Exodus, this is God commissioning Moses. And God is not an 11-year-old British boy. (laughs) Amen. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is powerful. And what we see in Exodus chapter 3 is God reveal himself to Moses in three very powerful ways. And as we look at these three things, I want these to be images of God for you that the Scripture reveals that lead us into 2015 as ways to worship this mighty God. So let's read Exodus chapter 3, 1 through 6. This is, this is a very important chapter in Exodus. So let's move into Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flocks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, otherwise known as Sinai as well, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the story of the burning bush. A bush that is burning, a bush that is, that is on fire, but it's not consumed. And God speaks out of the bush and tells Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Trivia for you Bible trivia people. This is the first time the word holy shows up in the Bible. Right here at the burning bush. 
And God says to Moses, this is holy ground. You can't just, you can't just barge into my presence, Moses. I am God Almighty. I'm a consuming fire. Take off your sandals and respect me and honor me as holy. I am transcendent. I am distinctly other than you, Moses. I am holy. I wonder how often we actually discuss the holiness of God in our churches today. We have a casual, feel-good, let's-make-everybody-happy type of church culture, and nobody really wants to talk about God being absolutely holy. Do you realize He's the three times holy God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we need to have a dose of His holiness as we go into 2015. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. My favorite quote from R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God Listen to what he says. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us. He is too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In his presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting him personally may be our greatest trauma. Is that your God? It's the God of the Bible. The holy, transcendent, powerful, majestic God. I'm not sure why we're getting a buzz up here, but I'm going to unplug these. <laughs> having a lot of difficulties this morning, technically. Maybe, just maybe, the devil doesn't want you to hear this message this morning. I don't know. But God is a holy, majestic, sovereign God, he's holy. So first thing that God reveals to, to, to Moses, I am holy. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. You're coming into the presence of someone that's distinctly other. God's not your buddy. God's not just like us. He is totally separate. He's distinct. He's transcendent. He's almighty God. But at the same time as him being holy, secondly, we see the mercy of God. Let's continue reading verses 7 through 12. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know they're suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God says it again. I remember. I see. I know, I'm concerned, I've heard the cry of help. I'm going to act in compassion, Moses, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deliver my people out of slavery, and here's how I'm going to do it, Moses. I'm choosing you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. We don't have time to look at all these, but Moses gives five protests, five reasons why he shouldn't be chosen. 
We'll just look at the first one here. What's the first thing he says? God, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. I'm a fugitive who's lived on the backside of nowhere for the last 40 years. Why am I so special, God? Who am I that you would choose me to go? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. And look at verse 12. He says, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Fourteen times in Genesis we saw that. God repeated 14 times, especially to Jacob and Joseph, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. God made a promise to Jacob in Genesis chapter 26, I will be with you. We saw it in Joseph all those, those years he was in prison, I will be with you. Now the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, this transcendent, this holy God, this consuming fire of a God, this God that's compassionate, this God that's merciful, says to Moses, I will be with you. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. But that's not all. Not only is God holy, not only is God merciful, but thirdly, we see the power of God. Let's keep reading. It gets even more exciting. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, here's a second protest. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise, very important there, verse 17, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. First protest, Moses, who am I? Second protest, if I go, what am I supposed to tell? Who am I supposed to tell them to send me? Who's sending me? And what does God say? I am. That's a very interesting way to state things, isn't it? What's God saying? I am. Most people use an adjective at the end of a sentence when they use the word I am. For example, I am Sean. I am six foot two. I I am blonde. I am Zach's and Aiden's father. I am Don's wife. Husband. Yeah, that makes it really weird. You didn't know that, did you? 
I am married to Dawn. How about that? I am Dawn's husband. Nobody has the inherent power, majesty, or authority to simply say, I am, and leave it out there, except for God. God's the only one that can say, I am, period, and that's all you need to know. I am who I am, I am, I am is sending you. That's my name, my name forever. My name, the name of the Lord, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, of your forefathers. I am that I am. I am the great I am. And notice verse 17, he says, I promise, I promise that I will go with you, and I make this promise that I will deliver you. And what's the ultimate purpose why God's going to deliver the Egyptians? Why does God do anything? Did you catch it? Did you catch verse 18? What does God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh? Look at what verse 18 says. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, or go to Pharaoh, and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may do what? Sacrifice to the Lord our God. It's about worship. Pharaoh, the reason that you need to let us go is so that we may go and worship our God. So why is God doing this in the first place? So that his people can worship him. His people can sacrifice to him. His people can worship. And so there's the setup to the book of Exodus. It's the setup. You've got a problem. What's the problem? The people are in slavery under the harsh taskmasters of the Egyptian Pharaoh. Number two, God has compassion. God has concern. God says, I know. I remember my covenant. I remember my promise. I know I'm in the midst of your pain. I'm going to do something about it. So number three, he says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to deliver the Israelites. I'm the great I am. Go. But the most important aspect of the book of Exodus is the actual Exodus. Exodus means exit. The exiting. So what I want us to do is look at the fourth thing this morning, the actual exodus. The reason why the book's called Exodus, the exiting. The writer of Hebrews says this about Moses and the exodus. In Hebrews 11, 28-29, By faith he, that's Moses, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The most important event in the Old Testament is the Passover exodus. It's alluded to all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's alluded to in the New Testament, all the way through the book of Revelation. It is the milestone of what the book of Exodus is about. So let's read about the Passover. It's the 10th plague, and the Passover leads right to the Exodus of them leaving Egypt. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. And this is after the plagues and after Moses has gone and confronted Pharaoh and God's hardened Pharaoh's heart and we have these showdowns. We finally get to Exodus chapter 12. Let's pick up in verse 21. Just for the sake of time, verse 21 through the end of the, well, through 42. Exodus 12, 21 through 42. Let's just read this together. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before bound up, and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Go down to verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. God is going to execute his justice on pagan Egypt. Egypt was a pagan nation of idolatry Egypt was going to pay for the 400 years that they had oppressed the Israelites. And God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send my destroyer, my angel of death, to pass through at midnight. And if he sees blood on the doorpost and lintel of a home, he will pass over that home. But if he doesn't see the blood, he's going to destroy the firstborn. So God gives the Israelites a provision a provision, a substitutionary atonement of the blood of a lamb to be poured on the lintel and doorpost of the house so that they could be saved by the blood of a lamb. There had to be a substitutionary atonement provided in the place of the Israelites. Now, before we get too um, carried away with Egypt, let's just ask a question. Was in Israel any less guilty of sin than the Egyptians? The Israelites were just as guilty of sin. And here's the thing. If they had not put blood and lentil on their doorposts, what would have happened to the Israelites? 
they would, have, they would experience God's justice as well. So God gives to the Israelites a provision that they had to, by faith, obey. By faith, they had to believe God's provision a substitutionary atonement. They had to kill the, the lamb. They had to put the blood on the doorpost and lentils. They had to, to do that as a way to escape God's wrath. And what happens at midnight? The angel of death passes through. And because there's no blood on the Egyptians' homes, what happens? The firstborn are killed. And there's a scream, there's a cry. There's a midnight cry of anguish. It said it, was, it rang throughout all of Egypt. But just imagine the, the blood-curdling screams that were heard on that night when people woke up and realized that their firstborn were dead. Even a, the Pharaoh's son was dead. Let me ask you a question. How many plagues were there before the final plague? Nine, right? If you go back and read the story, in all the first nine plagues, none of those plagues affected the Israelites. They were safe from those plagues. But the tenth plague would have affected the Israelites just as much as it would have affected the Egyptians had they not, by faith, done what God had told them by trusting in a substitutionary atonement for their sins. What were the conditions that God said? You got to stay in your tent and you got to sacrifice a spotless lamb and you've got to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentils. There had to be a substitutionary atonement. This is, re- this is, this is required by faith. It's not automatic. The, 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 the nation of Israel had to believe what God said. They had to believe that God was going to provide a, an atonement for them and so by faith they had to do that. But I want you to notice something in verse 42. Interesting commentary that the Lord says, it was a night of watching by the Lord. It was a night of watching, meaning that Hebrew word mere means God watched. It's kind of a play on words. What what did God do when he passed over? He watched to see if there was blood. If there was blood, he passed over. But it was also a night of watching in the sense that God watched over Israel. God protected Israel. God put the final nail on the coffin of Egypt and allowed Israel to, to plunder the Egyptians and to let, them, to let them go. It was a night of watching. The Lord protected. The Lord saw. But notice what else it says there. That same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel. It was also a night of watching for the for the nation of Israel. And you may ask the question, well, what does it mean it's a night of watching? Do you know the, the history of the Passover? Every time that the Jews celebrate the Passover, the, the very last thing in the Passover is they're to watch. What are they to watch for? They're to watch for their coming Messiah. Now, even to this day, when Jews celebrate Passover, they're still watching for their Messiah because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so we know that Jesus has come as the Passover lamb, as the Messiah, as our Savior. And so when we think about it being a time of watching, think about the way we start 2015. Instead of it being a night of watching, may it be a year of watching. Watching for what? We're not waiting for Jesus to come. He's already come. But would it be a a year that we... As a church family, you as individuals, you as family say, listen, 
God is holy, God is merciful, God is powerful, and he's done this through the sacrifice of his son. Let's focus on Jesus in 2015 and let the gospel be central to all that we do. I want you to think about two things here. What were the Israelites delivered from? They were delivered from two things that night. The first thing they were delivered from was slavery. The second thing they were delivered from was God's wrath. Slavery to Egypt, God's wrath against sin. They were saved. First of all, they were in bondage to Pharaoh. Secondly, if they had not put the blood, they would have suffered the same justice that the Egyptians did. I want you to think about the New Testament for just a moment. Fast forward to the New Testament. John the Baptist is walking on a dusty road. John's followers are there, and he looks across the horizon, and he sees Jesus walking towards him. And what does John the Baptist say about Jesus when he sees him coming? He says this in John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Who's the, Pas- who's the Passover Lamb? Jesus. And Paul even makes it clear. What else what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.7? Paul even says it explicitly. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb. So what were, the Egypt, what were the Israelites delivered from on that night? Bondage to slavery, God's wrath. If you're a Christian here this morning, what have you been delivered from by the Passover lamb, Jesus? Slavery to sin and Satan and God's wrath in hell. Do you see the parallels here? God's power has freed us from slavery to sin. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2 says. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Just as God delivered the Israelites from the tyranny and bondage of Pharaoh, God has delivered us from the tyranny and bondage of Satan and sin through the Passover land, Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you've been freed from bondage. But the second thing that you see here is just like the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea, God has powerfully drowned our sins and put them to the bottom of the ocean. Just like the Egyptian army was put to the bottom of the sea, God has taken our sins and put them to the bottom of the sea. Micah 7, 18 through 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That's God's power. What about God's holiness? 
What about God being a consuming fire? God being holy at the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a consuming fire. I am a God who's holy. Here's the God who's holy. If the Israelites had not put blood on the lentils and door frames of their house, they would have experienced the holiness of God that night. All of their firstborn would have been killed as well. But God provided for them a substitutionary atonement, and it had to be through blood. Hebrews 9.26. But as it is, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, for you this morning, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ, there's only one answer to the problem. The problem for you is that you're in bondage, you're in slavery, you're in sin to Satan, to your flesh, to, to, to all these things that are keeping you in, in a dungeon of sin. And the only answer for you to be released from that is not to try harder, to not work harder, to not, to not make a New Year's resolution to be better, not to go to church more. Your only thing is to do what Moses and the Israelites did, and that is to trust in the only provision that God provided, and that is Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. That is the only way. Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't trust in Jesus, there's going to be a midnight cry. Instead of that midnight cry in Egypt where there was a shriek because the firstborn were all dead and God executed his justice, for those that don't trust Christ as their Savior, there's going to be the eternal cry in hell of those who have not trusted Christ for their salvation. So this morning, as 2015 starts, would you trust in the only provision that God has for you? Because there's going to come a day where God's going to pass over your life on the day of judgment. And what is he going to see? As he passes over on the day of judgment, is he going to see the blood of Christ in your place? Or is he going to see you standing there in your own sin? Jesus is the only one that can be your Savior. See, God is holy. He has the right to punish sin. But God is merciful. He's provided Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. And God is powerful. His mighty hand can crush all of the problems, all the difficulties, all the sin, all the shame, all the bondage, everything that you're holding on to this morning. He can crush it by the power of his outstretched hand. So as you think about 2015, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God. What better time than right now, this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus before for your salvation, what better time than this morning, right now, to trust in Jesus, to call out to Jesus, to trust in in the sacrifice of Jesus, to, to, to submit yourself to Jesus. What better way to start 2015 than to say, I wave the white flag of surrender. I give up trying to live for myself. I'm sick and tired of being in my sin. I know I'm in bondage. My only hope, Jesus, is to look to you, to cry to you, and to receive the forgiveness that comes through you because you shed your blood on the cross for me, and today I receive that by faith. And you know what will happen if you do that? The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved the shackles will come off the chains will come off and you will have the forgiveness of jesus christ flood your heart and you'll have the assurance of eternal life with him forever so if you've never done that if you've never trusted christ before for salvation i implore you to do that this morning as we go into a time of prayer as we prepare to take the lord's supper 
spend some time just crying out to Jesus for him to save you. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. And, <clears throat> you know, the Lord's Supper is, is, is really a, an extenuation of Passover. When Jesus was there on the Last Supper that last night, he was celebrating the Passover, the Passover meal that all pointed to him, his body being broken, his, his blood being poured out. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're, we're in a sense celebrating what Jesus has done as our Passover lamb. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, just spend a few moments in silent prayer asking the Lord to prepare your heart to worship him. Father, first of all, we want to praise you for your holiness. You are a holy God. You are a consuming fire. You are so exalted and so far above and so high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory, Lord. We praise you for your holiness. Lord, we also want to praise you for your mercy. That you know, and you, can, you have compassion, and you're concerned, and you, you forgive, and you're right there in the middle of our issues, and right there in the middle, and you've not forgotten. You're there. And you've made promises to us that you'll fulfill. Because you're a faithful God. You're a merciful God. Lord, we also want to praise you for your power. Through your outstretched arm, you delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. And that same outstretched arm is, 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 is available for us today, Lord, to trust in you that whatever we may be facing, whatever obstacles or hurdles or problems or issues or sin in our life, we know that you're powerful. So God, you're holy, you're merciful, and you're powerful. And that's most clearly demonstrated in Jesus, our Passover lamb, who was crucified, and bled and died so that we could be released from our bondage to sin and we could escape your justice on that final day. So Lord Jesus, as we take this supper, your supper, as we start 2015, Lord, may we just be so thankful for your grace so thankful for your sacrifice, so thankful for your forgiveness. And may this be a year of watching, a year where our eyes are fixed upon you, Jesus, and the cross and the glory of the cross and where our eyes are fixed upon your holiness, your mercy, and your power. May this be a sweet time of worship as we take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.